Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com. Today, as we start to think about uh, St. Junipero Serra, right, the founder of the California Missions, we have to acknowledge that scholars in examining his life and legacy have often afforded great attention to the mission's material culture, church-state interactions, and ecclesiastical organization and administration. But with a few exceptions, they've allotted far less attention to the role that their founder's distinctive religious identity as a Franciscan friar played in these endeavors. Much of Father Serra's motivation, approach, and theological outlook on the missions that he established was due to his own religious development as a friar minor of the regular observance. St. Junipero Serra, in fact, inherited a very long tradition of missionary activity from the Franciscan order, dating all the way back to its founder, St. Francis of Assisi. Inspired by the example of the Pavarello, Franciscan missionaries <clears throat> Excuse me. We're already actively extending the gospel of Jesus Christ beyond the boundaries of Christendom in the early 13th century, and they continued to evangelize the non-believer in every age leading up to the establishment of the Alta California missions in the second half of the 18th century. Franciscans were accompanying Christopher Columbus already on his second voyage to the New World in 1493, and of course, in the context uh, of a paper conference, uh, of a conference paper, excuse me, like this, uh, I simply can't touch on uh, adequately all of the history of the Franciscan missionary tradition prior to St. Junipero Serra. Nonetheless, I would like to try to offer a modest glimpse into the history of the order's theological outlook and its missiology. Uh, this will then constitute the, the theory side of my paper. And then I'd like to briefly discuss the ways in which Francis's call for renewal had been accomplished in other places and other times. Uh, and this will constitute the practice side, right, uh, of my paper, okay? But it's really in putting the missionary ideals of the order into practice that we can see how the circuitous and sometimes tumultuous history of the order's relationship with education became essential to the success of the friars' evangelical missions beyond the boundaries of Christian Europe. Both missiology and history both theory and practice, left an impression on the development of the Franciscan order as a whole, and certainly played a salient role in shaping the missionaries that went out to the unevangelized. With this paper, then, I hope to acknowledge the centrality of the missionary activity in the life of the order that St. Francis founded uh, from its early days on down to the 18th century. But I also hope to demonstrate that it was carried out differently in the 18th century than it was in the 12th century, uh, as missionaries refine their techniques and uh, learn from their failures. The missionary activity of the Franciscan order then always begins in theory with the life of St. Francis and his companions. The Franciscan order was born from the missionary words of Christ in the Gospels. As the lesser brothers went out into the world, no matter where they ended up, the inherited memory of St. Francis of Assisi continued to guide them in their endeavors because it made up the heart of their rule. The example that St. Francis of Assisi offers to his followers in any area, any era, excuse me, is an example of renewal, specifically a renewal of the evangelical life in the world. Although Francis of Assisi 
composed the rule of the order in the early years of the 13th century, the way of life that it contains is really a product of uh, the evangelical awakening of the 12th century, protesting against the vices and exigencies of the 12th century, of 12th century Italy's renewed urban and commercial life, the agents of the 12th century evangelical awakening patterned their call for a renewal of Christian living after the example of Christ and the apostles found in the New Testament, what they knew as the apostolic life, or in Latin, the vita apostolica. Francis of Assisi is perhaps the most recognizable participant of this movement, albeit a very late one, uh, but inspired by a personal encounter with Christ in the small chapel of San Damiano, just outside of the city of Assisi, and then hearing Christ's words proclaimed in the Gospel of Matthew at Mass, Francis of Assisi renounced his profligate life of luxury as a merchant's son and began to pattern his life after the descriptions of the life of the apostles found in the New Testament. In fact, his imitation of the early church was so complete that um, many, in time, came to regard him as an alter Christus, right, uh, in translation, another Christ. The Vita Apostolica, which Francis of Assisi lived, was truly then a way of life patterned after the observance of the gospel that Christ and his apostles had modeled. Therefore, when it came time to pen a rule to govern the communal life of those who came to follow his example, Francis of Assisi extended the example of Christ and the apostles out to his followers, knowing really of no better orientation for their life together. According to Thomas of Chilano, who wrote the earliest life of Francis, the uh, Vita Prima, the first draft, draft of Francis's rule for his budding order was made up of little more than excerpts from the four Gospels. Uh, then, when filled out with the necessary judicial formula, formulations, the Franciscan rule dictated a life of extreme poverty and itinerant preaching of repentance, which then marked a chance for conversion, a chance for a spiritual rejuvenation, and a chance for uh, the rest of Christendom to return to the seemingly pristine condition of the early church. And of course, that had to be shared. Right? Missionary activity then was always a part of the apostolic life. If this renewal was patterning itself after the apostolic life of the early church, then the fact that the apostles had gone out to the ends of the earth after Pentecost would not have been lost on men like St. Francis. Francis of Assisi, uh, is the first founder of any religious order to consciously include in his rule a chapter about the missions to non-Christians, which is found in chapter 16 of his earlier rule of 1221 and in chapter 12 of the official rule of the order approved in 1223. From the first prescriptions found in the rule of 1221, it's plain to see that the wellspring of Francis's missionary zeal is to be found in his response to the apostolic mandate of Matthew 10 the very same passage that inspired his own initial conversion to a life of itinerant preaching when he heard Matthew 10 proclaimed at Mass. In the 10th chapter of Matthew's Gospel, Christ commands his followers to go forth to the lost sheep of Israel and to proclaim a message of repentance, because the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Francis believed that the same command to go out to preach repentance, which Christ had given to the apostles, was still the same command that was being given to him in 1206, and was still being given to his followers years later. He believed that it was Christ who called out to each of the friars, and he believed that Christ was still calling them into the mission fields. Taken in context, what Francis articulates in, uh, in this chapter is a kind of missionary strategy then, which was passed down through the ages to future generations of Franciscans through the rule. 
but also, uh, less tangibly, but perhaps more effectively, through the inherited memory of Francis of Assisi, which aroused reform uh, in, in the order almost in every century. So rather than finding each element of Francis's missiology in the various legenda that circulated about St. Francis within the order after his death, or in trying to uh, seek it out in the official rule of the order approved by, pope, um, by the Pope in 1223, I want to work specifically with the earlier rule, which was penned by St. Francis in 1221. Argu arguably, it provides us with the purest account of Francis's thought on the missionary endeavors of his nascent religious order. So let's turn to that. This is what we find when we look at the 16th chapter of, uh, of the earlier rule of 1221. And what you notice here uh, is that first, instead of relying on the stability of a single location as previous monastic rules in the West had done, Francis's rule articulates a fundamental mobility and an openness to the world. From other places in the rule, we can see that the earliest Friars Minor were a society of wandering preachers without permanent residence. Before they were allowed to stay at the Portiuncula, they had to camp out in caves, they lived with lepers. Um, and just as Jesus and the apostles wandered and preached, so Francis linked their itinerancy with preaching. Therefore, it's quite natural that the chapter on preaching uh, follows directly after this chapter on the missionary statutes of the order. But there it is, uh, there it is important to note that Francis does not refer exclusively to preaching by words. If I would fast forward to chapter 17, we see that he states that all friars should preach by deeds. This is important because it means that going forth to renew the world is not just the job of some eloquent speakers within the order, but it's at the very heart of the order itself that all friars, regardless of their excellence in preaching, were missionaries simply by going forth out into the world and providing the world with their example. Secondly, we know, what we know here when we look at chapter 16 uh, is that humility was a key characteristic of the early friars. Francis wanted to be one with the lepers uh, and, and the most destitute of society. We know that he did not seek a position of status in society. In fact, he sought to be ostracized from society, to be lowly, to be poor. And not just poor in terms of material possessions, but also in status. And it's for this reason that he did not desire to be ordained. He adamantly protested the status that the clergy had in his own day, and he only ended up taking the office of deacon to placate Pope Innocent III, who thought that it was best that the founder of a new religious order should be a member of the clergy, at least in some manner. <laughs> With this in mind, then, the real key to chapter 16 is his assertion about how the friars should proceed throughout the world. Um, and in discussing this, Francis really provides two ways. The first is that the friars should not engage in arguments or disputes with the non-believers, which is strange considering this chapter is all about right, a missionary activity. The brothers should not want to prevail or to gain an advantage. They should not want to win a point. Francis believed that the living witness of fraternity and the solidarity preceded one's confession of faith. And so a conciliatory attitude would have been more beneficial. In this, Francis ends up proclaiming subordination as the first and most important way of missionary work. The second way, however, which is articulated in chapter 16, is that the friar must preach, right? 
Preaching the word of God was a central element of Francis's missionary strategy, but only after the friar had established his witness of life. According to Francis, the missionary should not rush in blindly. He must actually wait for the favorable moment for preaching the gospel. And preaching should then lead directly to baptism. We see the two here linked, right? Baptism is the goal. Uh, it marks the successful conversion of the non-believer, according to here in to chapter 16 of the rule. So then, according to the rule of the order, the friars were to respond to the apostolic mandate of Matthew 10 by going throughout the world, submitting themselves uh, to all that they met, just as Christ had, had done. And then, once that had been done, they would theoretically have gained the credibility in the eyes of those to whom they went to successfully preach the gospel and to baptize. And again, this is all according to the example that they find in the gospels. However, in submitting themselves to all that they had met, we do note that they were also opening themselves up to martyrdom. Uh, and Francis acknowledges this in chapter 16 also. And I quote, uh, All the brothers, wherever they may be, should remember that they gave themselves and abandoned their bodies to the Lord Jesus Christ. And for the love of him, they must make themselves vulnerable to their enemies, both visible and invisible, because the Lord says, Whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. End quote. Participating in missions to the non-believer, specifically to the Saracens, as it's uh, titled in this particular chapter, presented the friar with the possibility of participating in Christ's passion and death. And this, according to St. Francis, was the most essential aspect of the Vita Apostolica. It was the chief characteristic of the order of friars minors' conformity to Christ. Christ had died for those to whom he went. And this point was not lost on uh, St. Francis or on the early friars either. As numerous writings attest, martyrdom was the primary motivation for the early Franciscan missions to the non-believer. When the sources talk about what motivated Francis and his earliest followers to go beyond the boundaries of Christendom, to go to the lands of the Muslims, they describe the friars as burning with a desire for martyrdom. The potential for martyrdom was a central motivation for many friars. It certainly was for Francis himself. The theme of martyrdom emerges clearly in the writings of St. Francis and in the earliest accounts of his life. Uh, again, to, um, to bring up Thomas of Chilano, Francis's earliest biographer, uh, in, again, the Vita Prima, the first life of Francis, he says, the blessed father Francis, made ardent by divine love, wanted always to put his hand to more difficult tasks and he desired to attain the summit of perfection, since he was already walking according to the commandments of God, his heart having been enlarged. For in the sixth year after his conversion, burning utterly with a desire of sacred martyrdom, he decided to travel to Syria in order to preach the Christian faith and penance to the Saracens and other infidels." End quote. The potential for martyrdom accounted for this for his desire to preach in the Muslim lands. And it had a very strong influence on the first few generations of Franciscans also. It motivated the friars to go to Spain, to North Africa, and to the Middle East. And when news reached St. Francis of the martyrdom of five of his friars in Morocco in early 1220, he is said to have proclaimed, now I can truly say that I have five brothers. Which again demonstrates the importance that this rhetoric of conforming oneself to the life of Christ, most perfectly through martyrdom, had in these early phases of the order. At that time, even Claire of Assisi is reported to have expressed her desire to flee the confines of San Damiano 
to undergo the same death that these early friars uh, had undergone in Morocco. Right? Now, neither Francis nor Claire were trained as theologians, but even when we fast forward right, a few generations and look at the university-trained theologians of the Franciscan order at the end of the 13th century, like Bonaventure or, or, uh, or Peter Olivi, they understood the example of Christ on the cross as, uh, as Christ's witness to Christian perfection and thus to the perfect model of the Vita Apostolica. That's truly what it, it meant. Now, over the course of the 14th and 15th centuries, not all friars of the order always recognized the literal example of Francis of Assisi in the spirit of the rule. Many thought that the success of the order's apostolate within the church to counter heresy and to dispense with the sacraments should determine the way in which the friars lived, even if uh, it were counter to the simple principles of Francis himself. However, Francis' witness to the 12th century conception of the Vita Apostolica, the apostolic life, continued to renew the life of the order through the various reform movements within the order. And as Spanish missions to the New World were beginning in the early 16th century, we see that the reform-minded minister general of the order, Fray Francisco de los Angelos Quinones, reminded those who went to the New World of this close connection between Francis's prescriptions for missionary activity and the life of the rule. Quinones was the minister general of the order from 1523 until 1527, and as such, he was also the initiator of the first official Franciscan missionary expedition to New Spain. He was also a devotee of the Eremitic reform movement of the Spanish Franciscan Juan de Guadalupe in the late 15th century, a movement that was dedicated to the strictest observance of the rule. In initiating the first official missionary expedition of the Franciscan order to New Spain under Martin de Valencia, Quinones idealistically sought to recreate the spiritual and physical rigors of the rule in the New World. In his instructions to the Twelve Apostles of New Spain as they were departing for Spain, as they were departing, excuse me, from Spain for the New World in 1524, Quinones established the missiology for the first generation of friars in the New World uh, through these instructions. And it hearkened back to the missiology contained in chapter 16 of the earlier rule of 1221. Before sending Martin de Valencia and his companions to Mexico City to evangelize the recently conquered Aztec Empire, the Minister General of the Franciscan Order invited these missionaries to the Monastery of Santa Maria de los Angelos uh, to reflect upon their calling and the task at hand. And what resulted right, uh, were these sets of instructions, or instruccion, which provides the modus operandi for their efforts. In sending out the Twelve Apostles of New Spain, the Minister General of the Order equated missionary preaching with the literal observance of the rule to which the friars had sworn their obedience. The poverty and humility of the Twelve Apostles of New Spain was to be the centerpiece of their missionary strategy. In 1523, we see that at least Francisco Quinones was still equating the rule with the example of Francis's Vita Apostolica. And what stands out in the instruction issued by Quinones are the parallels that he made between the departing expedition of the Twelve Apostles of New Spain, right, uh, the, early, the ministry of the early church, and the life of St. Francis. Quinones places Martin de Valencia and his companions in the company of Francis and Jesus, but he also bound their success to the authenticity with which they lived out the apostolic life. 
He says that poverty and humility were necessary for success, along with love of God and neighbor. He also reminded them, however, that their communal life among the neophytes of New Spain must conform to that of the gospel, which, he continues, will be assured if, the, if they vigilantly observe the rule of the order, without gloss or dispensation, according to the example of St. Francis. Regardless of the difficulties that they were to face in New Spain, Quinones assured them that they would find success in rigorously holding to the example of Francis. To that end, Quinones concluded the Instruction by stating that harmony and good example would be as important to help in the conversion as words and preaching. When Martin de Valencia and his companions arrived in Mexico City, the Indians followed them in utter amazement, beholding how they trudged along barefooted and in ragged dress, in so marked of a contrast to the Spanish soldiers that they then hailed them as motolinia, meaning the poor ones, uh, a moniker that Toribio de Benevente, one of the 12 missionaries, kept for the remainder of his life. And consequently then, the name, the 12 apostles of New Spain, appears to be an apt one. Now, when Toribio de Benevente, uh, when his ragged dress while his ragged dress certainly impressed the natives of Mexico City in 1224, the spiritual conquest of Mexico was due to more than simply the friar's witness of literal observance of the rule. The Twelve Apostles of New Spain and those who continued to arrive from Spain certainly instructed and catechized in Nahuatl, the native language of the Aztecs. And this required study on the part of the Franciscan missionaries. So in practice, the Franciscan order's adoption of study and education into the life of the order was a major stepping stone furthering the success of their missionary efforts. But it was not easy. The allowance for scholarly activity is not found in the earlier rule. In fact, uh, just about the opposite is. <laughs> in discussing the friar's prayer of the divine office in chapter 3, the earlier rule stipulates that, quote, those who know how to read the Psalter may have it, but those who do not know how to read should not have any book, end quote. So Francis really had not given any thought to the education of his brothers. In all likelihood, he did not think that it was necessary uh, in order to live out the gospel. Anthony of Padua had to specifically petition Francis to allow him to teach theology to members of the order in Bologna. Schooling for the Franciscan missionary, however, put him in possession of both the witness of life and the linguistic tools necessary to convey the reasons for that witness. Already in the late 13th century, Franciscans were beginning to establish schools for the study of foreign languages and cultures in order to be more effective missionaries. In Spain, Franciscan missionaries became some of the first linguists and ethnographers to document the customs and traditional beliefs of the natives. The first Franciscans to go to the Saracens, uh, we see only achieved really modest results by simply living out Francis's example. But once familiar with the native languages of the non-Christians to whom they went, then Franciscan missionaries achieved stunning results and were much more effective in the implementation of Francis's missionary strategy. Within just the first century of the order's existence, we see the Franciscan friars pioneering missions not only to the Holy Land, like Francis, but to Muslim communities in Spain and North Africa, to the Mongols of Asia, before Francis himself could go, however, to the, and his mission to the Holy Land, we do have one of his early companions, 
brother of Giles, brother Giles of Assisi, who went to the Muslims already in 1215. Now, in looking at the life of brother Giles, right, we don't ever hear about him preaching against Muhammad or against Islam while he's in the Holy Land. All we hear is that he proclaimed the gospel by his way of life, performing some of the corporal works of mercy and begging for alms. And this is exactly in keeping with Francis's example, and we may believe that, in fact, it worked for a time, right? Because by 1217, it seems that it was necessary for the order to send a provincial minister to the Holy Land. So we can suppose, right, that a community had already grown up by that particular time. And more Franciscan communities were then established in Antioch, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, and Nazareth. Right? However, none of these communities lasted very long, uh, simply because their protection was dependent upon the Crusaders' presence right, in the Holy Land. And when the Crusaders left, uh, they were really vulnerable. Now, despite the fact that we see that without preaching, Giles of Assisi was able to foster some of these early communities, the adoption of education and the creation of schools unbeknownst to people like Anthony of Padua, provided the perfect complement to the missionary strat strategy expressed in Francis's rule. Now, while it caused uh, certainly quite a stir in Europe as it uh, served to elevate the lesser brothers to a position of status and clerical influence, uh, in non-Christian lands, education provided the Franciscan missionaries with the tools that they needed to learn the language of the natives, the traditions, the religious beliefs of the natives, uh, and, and all of these things to then help right, with the conversion. Now, the two best examples from the Middle Ages uh, of using this type of education to further right, the missionary ideals are Raymond Lull and John of Monte Corvino. Raymond Lull is probably more well known to us today as an innovative thinker in natural philosophy, mathematics, and theology but he is the first in the Franciscan tradition to relate the study of languages directly to the work of evangelism. Uh, like St. Junipero Serra, he was born uh, on Majorca, shortly after Majorca itself had been liberated from the Muslims in the middle of the 13th century. And his interaction with Muslim communities on Majorca convinced him that knowledge of the languages of the Muslims was necessary for the successful evangelization of the Saracens. As early as 1276, he established a college for the study of Oriental languages, such as Arabic and Greek, on his home island of Majorca. And in the 14th century, we see him pleading the case for the creation of programs of study for Oriental languages uh, in other places within Europe, which eventually did catch on in, in Avignon, in Bologna, in Paris, Oxford, and Salmonica. John of Monte Corvino, on the other hand, was initially involved in missions sent to Persia and Armenia. Then, he was sent by Pope Nicholas IV to the Great Khan in Mongolia. Eventually, John of Monte Corvino found his way to the capital of the Mongolian Empire, uh, Kambalik, or Peking, which is today the capital city of China, Beijing. And for 10 years, between 1294 and 1305, he worked virtually all on his own, catechizing and baptizing the children of Kambalik establishing churches and teaching the faith. And the letters written by John de Montecorvino provide us then with a terrific glimpse into the attempts made at evangelization and the methods that he used. And we see that in the letters that he ended up familiarizing himself with the native vernacular language. He ended up preaching in it, and he translated, uh, he translated into Chinese the New Testament and the Psalms. So, he was so also he was instructing many young boys in Latin and Greek, 
right? Um, he wrote psalms and hymns for them, and then would train them to serve in the mass and to sing in the choir. And so it's in his letters that he sent back to Europe, we see that he claims that he won as many as 6,000 converts right, through this, these particular means. Now, moving back to New Spain, these same practical techniques of integrating oneself within a culture in order to more effectively evangelize continued. As far as the study of native peoples of, of the native peoples of Mesoamerica is concerned, Fray Bernardinos de Sagún is one of the two towering figures in the history of the Franciscan missionary tradition. He was instrumental in preserving information about Aztec culture, of using Mexican Indian informants uh, and working in their native language, Nuatl, to preserve those traditions. Uh, his intention then was to understand native culture, especially their religious beliefs, so that Christian evangelization would be more effective. He arrived um, in New Spain in 1529, but it wasn't until 1547 that he really began collecting data about the life, culture, and history of these people. And his techniques of conducting extensive interviews of native elders has led some modern scholars to consider him to be the first ethnographer. The height of his scholarly achievement, then, is his general history of the things of New Spain, which is a tremendous 12-volume compilation of texts in Nahuatl and Spanish. And it outlines the pre-Columbian belief system of the Aztec tribes so as to assist the missionaries in identifying and thus eliminating the vestiges of traditional Indian religious practices. It deals mainly with religious matters, with natural history, and an accounting of the social structure of the area. Now, at the same time, other friars, like Fray Terribio de Benevente Motilania, uh, whom I've already mentioned, right, uh, were also composing grammars and dictionaries uh, of the Aztec language, and in turn, they also composed catechisms and the rudiments of, Catholic, of the Catholic faith for use by the native populations. Knowledge of native religious beliefs, then, was widely recognized as necessary for effective evangelization. And these, too, were recorded for the use of the Christian religious. As contact with the natives increased and the Spaniards gained additional insights into the native culture, the missionaries wrote more analytical, sophisticated, and virtually anthropological studies. By the time we arrived at the 18th century then, the Spanish had established apostolic colleges for the training of new missionaries. Uh, the colleges in Querétaro, Zacatecas, and San Fernando of Mexico were all established for the training of missionaries on the Spanish frontier in the same vein of missionary strategy. Now, in the end, however, what wed Francis' missiology to the practical exercise of missionary activity by his followers was, I believe, the perceived success that this combination yielded. Since the earliest days of the order, the millenarian view of history, espoused by the 12th century Calabrian abbot Joachim of Fiore, resonated with members of the Franciscan family. They believed Francis had initiated a new chapter in the history of the church, marked by a greater dispensation of the Holy Spirit upon humanity. Some of the so-called spiritual Franciscans of the 14th century uh, even made St. Francis out to be the angel of the sixth seal of the apocalypse, and others who understood Francis to represent an alter Christus, another Christ, designated him as such not only because of the way in which he modeled the Vita Apostolica, but, as they saw it, because he had initiated a new covenant 
between God and man. Now, such millenarianism we tend to designate as medieval. However, the Franciscans into the New World were widely, uh, excuse me, the Franciscans into the New World with widely touted success of their missionaries also tapped into this. As Franciscan missionary expeditions in New Spain won souls for Christ, contemporary biographers drew parallels between the apostolic work of the missionaries and the apostolic work of Francis. In the 16th century, Terribio de Benevente Motilinia cast the leader of the Twelve Apostles of New Spain, Martin de Valencia, as a second Francis in his History of the Indians of New Spain. Similarly, in the 18th century, Francisco Palo, uh, the biographer of St. Luna Pero Serra, cast him right, in the visage of a second Christ. Okay. And in both instances, we see that the connection is drawn uh, to the saintly founder or to Christ based upon their ability to uphold the rigors uh, of the Vita Apostolica and also their ability to further draw, draw souls to Christ. Um, and so we see that these parallels are made because they have succeeded both in the theory of missiology and also in its practice. So as we proceed then to examine the life and the accomplishments um, and legacy of St. Junipero Serra throughout the rest of the day, I simply want to kind of remind us that it's important to keep in mind this very long history of thinking about missionary activity in the Franciscan order which precedes Father Serra and the way in which it's, it developed over time. Born out of the evangelical awakening of the 12th century, the followers of St. Francis, including Junipero Serra, inherited a certain view of the nature and purpose of the religious life due to their obedience of the rule uh, of the order. Faith and Reason Podcasts, new media for the new evangelization from Franciscan University of Steubenville. Find more at faithandreason.com.